you would turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at the first 13 verses today. But before we do, let's ask for God's blessing for the reading of His Word. Father God, just as you came down on the Sunday of Pentecost, we remember that you have come into the hearts of all your people. Father, we ask this morning that your spirit would work. Uh, We know that this is not not some old religious scrapbook before us, but Father, this is your word is living and active. And Father, we ask that your spirit would bring illumination this morning, that we would see Jesus and that we would see the gospel. We ask this in his most holy and precious name. Amen. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. The grass withers And the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. There's a temptation in every passage of Scripture, but especially this one, to make it individualistic and to approach this text and ask, begin asking questions. How can I be filled with the Spirit? Can I speak in tongues? How does that happen? Can I have a similar experience or my experience is not like that. Is, is there something wrong with me? There's a temptation to make the text about me. But this text isn't. This text is about the gospel going to the nations. I'm going to remind you again of Acts 1 verse 8. It is the theme verse of the entire book. Jesus tells His disciples, he tells the apostles, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that's what we see. 
The Holy Spirit comes upon the followers of Jesus. They receive power and they are witnesses to the nations. That is what this passage is about. Spirit-filled witnessing to the nations. I'm not going to tell you this morning how to obtain a secret spiritual power and to be able to speak in tongues. The purpose of this passage is the gospel of Christ going to the nations. And so what I want to do is to look at exactly what happened and then to ask the question, what does it mean? When I was a kid, my family would load up in the minivan every July and we would drive down to Lena, Mississippi for the 4th. Um, I would be surprised if anyone in this room has ever been through Lena. It's a tiny community south of Carthage in Leake County. Now, most of the time, if you're driving to Jackson, you stay on 25 and you would never go to Lena. Um, It's a town of, I don't know, maybe a couple hundred people. But every July 4th, the city would just swell. Thousands of people. I don't know where they came from. Um, but they would, they would all come into town, and as a kid, there was so much fun to do. There was a trail. It, you, you could either walk along the road, but there was also a trail through the woods you could take to the fairgrounds area, and there were food vendors there, and I was too young to know this, but there were politicians speaking on stages, and then they had these different toy vendors. You could get a little foam lizard attached to a... To a uh, Clothes hanger, I don't know if anyone's ever seen those, but there, there was so much, um, and we, we loved it. We loved it. Um, the smell of sawdust was there. The sawdust was on the ground underneath the pavilion. And then uh, there was a turtle race as well. You'd go catch a turtle and paint its shell and then set it in a circle, and then they'd just take off, and you'd get a ribbon. But every July, we would, we would go to this celebration, My cousins from Murfreesboro would come down. My cousins from Knoxville would come down, and the house would fill as as well. And I I just, I'm still shocked that they were able to get that many people. And I I think, I'm sad to say that in recent years, that is a celebration that has fallen off. Well, in our text today, we see a similar celebration. Celebration celebration that was a large part of the Jewish calendar, and it's known by many names, the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Ingathering, the Feast of Weeks. It's also known as Pentecost. Pentecost is the Greek uh, name for this festival. Pentecost simply means uh, 50th. That's what it means, 50th. And you, 50th of what? Well, it's the 50th day after Passover. <clears throat> 50 days after Passover, you would have Pentecost. And this was the equivalent of a Jewish Thanksgiving. Everyone would gather and they would thank God for the harvest. Now, when we think of Thanksgiving, we obviously think of it in late November. But this feast would take place in late May or early June. And the reason for that is simply different weather patterns. In Israel, the rainy season is from October until May, and then once May passed, everything got very hot and dry, so the crops would need to be in. So they would harvest them, and then they would celebrate. And lots of people would come to town. There were easy traveling conditions because of the time of the year. 
And it was a big celebration, and so a lot of people would come to town. Some would come for the Passover, and they would just stay all the way through the 50-day period to Pentecost. You'll remember there's a, a, word, a word called the diaspora, and that refers to Jews who were scattered all over the known world. And festivals such as this, festivals such as Pentecost, would draw those people back to their homeland, to Jerusalem, so that they could celebrate together. We're actually given a list of places that some of these traveled from. Now, I'm the type of person, if I'm reading a book or if I'm watching a movie and there's a place that is named and I can't really point to it on a map or I'm just curious, I love pulling up Google Maps and just looking. And then I'll go down a rabbit hole and just looking at maps. But I, I, love, I love maps. And there are a few places on here that I could point to. Egypt is easy, Libya, Rome. But how many of us could find Phrygia or Elam, Cappadocia? Pontus, and so I did a favor for you. I found all of these on maps, and I'm going to tell you their modern-day equivalent. So if you look at verses, let's see, look at verses uh, 9 and 10. Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, all are people coming from what is now known as just modern-day Iran. Residents of Mesopotamia, you can look up Mesopotamia in the ancient Near East and you'll find it makes up modern-day Iraq, Kuwait, Turkey, and Syria. Judea is easier, that's modern-day Israel. But then Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia are all regions in modern-day Turkey. We might read this and hear Asia and think Asia, Asia, like China, Vietnam, Southeast Asia. But when you see Asia in the New Testament, it is pointing to a region in modern-day Turkey. Now, Egypt and Libya are both in northern Africa. Rome is, of course, in Italy. Cretans are people from the Greek island of Crete in the Mediterranean. And then Arabians from the area of the Sinai Peninsula in what is now Saudi Arabia. So you can see there are people from lots of different places, all the way from from modern-day Iran, Iraq, Turkey, Greece, Italy, northern Africa, all the way across the empire. And they've all come together to celebrate this feast. That is the setup for the event. And then we're told that the day of, early in the morning, God changes the world forever. We know it was early in the morning because of this drunk accusation that is thrown out in uh, verse 13. Peter responds by saying, what are you talking about? It's only the third hour in the day or 9 a.m. So we know this is early in the morning and the 120 are all in one place. You remember we saw the 120 last, last week. They're gathered together. These are the apostles and the disciples and followers of Jesus. They're all in one place. And then we would say out of nowhere, but we can't say that because we're told that from heaven, a rushing wind fell upon and filled the entire house. We've entered the time of the year in Mississippi when we're concerned about mighty winds. 
just last night. Uh, our phones were buzzing, waking us up around midnight because some mighty winds were coming through. Some of you know the sound that a mighty wind makes. I know my, my in-laws last April heard it. It can be a very intimidating thing. That's, that's the sound here. A mighty wind comes through, but this is not a natural storm. This is not some just phenomenon of nature. This is a deliberate act of God, and not act of God in the insurance lingo sense. The Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son to birth the church. There's a wind that roars through the house. And then in verse 3, we're told that divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. The Greek word rested, you could also say sat. This flame spreads throughout the room and each tongue sits on each person. I was trying to imagine what this would look like and I just thought of Lumiere, the candlestick from Beauty and the Beast. He would walk around with a flame on top of his head and I'm picturing a room with 120 people all shining brightly like candles. And then in verse 4, we're told that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak as other, in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now I want to illustrate this in a way that I think will be helpful and clear to you. Imagine that I, your pastor, a Mississippi boy, born and and born and educated, born and educated in Starkville, traveled to Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco. So I'm in San Francisco down at the wharf, walking on the sidewalk. And the Spirit of God comes upon me and I begin to preach the gospel in Korean. I don't know Korean. I've never been to Korea. I've never taken any lessons in the Korean language. But down the sidewalk, a ways from me is a Korean man who is visiting as a tourist in San Francisco and speaks some broken English, just enough to get by, but his his main comfortable language is Korean. That's his home language. And he hears someone speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ in Korean. And he turns around and he is very surprised to see a Caucasian man wearing a Mississippi State shirt and a pair of Crocs. He would have been amazed and astonished. That is exactly what happens in Acts 2. The Holy Spirit comes upon these Christians. They begin to speak in other tongues. They go out of the upper room into the streets and into the marketplaces. and They begin to preach. The people around hear this. They begin to gather. We're told in verse 11 that the Christians were telling the mighty works of God. But they weren't doing so in their own language. And they weren't doing so in some angelic language or some heavenly language. They were preaching in the human languages of these visitors. From these 15 different groups of people we've listed already and going through and pointed to on a map. 
These visitors are hearing Christ preached in their home language. I've been overseas uh, twice just to Central America, but I, I imagine it would be just something very comforting to be in a, another country that speaks another language in a city, and all of a sudden you hear someone speaking in your home language. You have that bond. That's what happens in Acts 2. They were amazed and astonished. And then they said, are not these who are speaking Galileans? You know, I've heard some scholars say that Galileans would have been recognizable because they had a very uh, recognizable accent. Um, we understand that there are some accents that are very recognizable. You speak and instantly we, can, we know where you're from. But also Galileans, they weren't cosmopolitan. They weren't... You wouldn't think of a Galilean as well-educated or well-traveled. They're just common people. And yet, these visitors in Jerusalem hear Galileans speaking the mighty things of God in their native language. And they say, what does this mean? They're going to get that answer. Because in verse 14, Peter starts to preach. Peter's going to tell them. He's going to answer that question, what does this mean? He's going to tell them of Christ and repentance and believing on him. But then there's this. You've got two reactions here. Some are amazed and perplexed, but then there's another reaction in verse 13. There are those who mock, saying they are filled with new wine, meaning they're drunk. The Galileans had a rough night last night, and they're still a little sauced. This isn't the work of the Lord. It's just a drunk Galilean talking nonsense. Those are the two reactions we see. And I want to ask, that's what happened. But I want to ask now, what, what does all this mean? And again, have in the back of your mind Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Keep that in the back of your head. You have the Spirit of God empowering the people of God to take the good news of God to the nations. So let's talk about what this all means. And I'll start at the very end with this uh, negative response this opposition to the gospel. And it really is amazing to think about that there were those present in this moment who witnessed this and yet did not believe and just ridiculed it and scoffed as drunkenness. It's a reminder of just how hard the human heart is and just how vital the work of the Spirit is, that the Spirit... If the Spirit does not work and regenerate and open our eyes to see and give us ears to hear, we will not hear. You've got some folks who are amazed, and you've got some who will come to faith. We know that 3,000 will come to faith on this one day. But then there are others who mock and ridicule the Word and the power of God. It really is amazing that these individuals are present and yet ridicule the power of God. John Calvin says, 
quote, how bestial must someone be who could actually see it and yet make fun, trying to ridicule the power of God? Yet that was the case, end quote. We're just reminded of the need we all have for the Spirit. Paul tells us later, he, Paul describes for us in Romans 1, the heart or the inability of the unbeliever. And we see it here in Acts 2. Paul says that they suppress the truth. They do not honor him as God. They do not give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. That's exactly what we see here. It's what these scoffers are doing, attempting to suppress the truth by just laughing it off. They lack spiritual life and spiritual understanding. That's my segue back to the beginning. Let's look at these two metaphors Luke uses, uh, wind and fire, and we'll start with wind. And here's the big point about wind. It's that the wind is a picture of the creative spirit, the life-giving spirit of God. The Greek word pneuma, you might recognize that if you know tools, pneumatic tools, air tools, but the word pneuma means spirit, wind, and breath. It's the same in the Hebrew, different word, but the word ruach means spirit and breath. And we see the Spirit of God associated with life. You think of the creations of the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1, and we're told that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In Genesis 2, when the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground, man did not become a living creature until the Lord breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. You think of the word of God, that it is living and active. And in 2 Timothy 3.16, we're told that all scripture is breathed out by God. What about Ezekiel 37? It's one of my favorite Old Testament stories. Ezekiel is set down in the middle of a valley of, full of dry bones that are bleached by the sun. And God says to Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel, I love his answer. He says, Lord God, you know. And then the Lord tells him, prophesy over these bones. Say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And we see God, these, these bones begin to rattle and to come back together and God covers them and sinews and flesh and skin to cover them. And then he puts his breath into them and they lived and stood. We can ask the question, well, what was that for? What was that showing us? God tells us. He says, these are the whole house of Israel. He says, Ezekiel, these are my people. These are my people who are spiritually dead. They do not know me. They are far from me. 
but I will give them new life. I will put my spirit within them and they will live and they will know that I am the Lord. That's what we see happen here at Pentecost. The spirit of God again coming down, being poured out on the people, filling them, bringing new life. It's what happens each and every time a sinner repents and believes on Christ. If someone is repentant, if they're believing in Jesus, that is a sign that this heavenly wind has blown through and life has been given where there was once deadness. So that the Spirit brings life, but there's also something else. We have fire here. Now, fire is represents lots of things in Scripture. It represents purity. It, of course, represents warmth, but it also represents light. You know, there's, for a long period of human history, fire was what people would use to light their homes and to light their ways at night. Now it's just kind of fun where... Our power will go out and we'll get all the candles out and light them and it's kind of cool, but then we're kind of ready for Ace to get the power back on. But for most of human history, if you need light, you have fire. It enabled people to see in the dark. And here is an important role of the Spirit, and that's to bring illumination. And there's a reason that I... Pray for illumination at the beginning of every sermon. Prayer that God would send his spirit to help all of us see and understand his word. That we would be enabled to see the truth of God. That we would be given understanding of the mighty works of God. Specifically the person and work of Jesus Christ. The illumination and light that the Spirit brought is how Peter is able to preach this sermon that we're going to see beginning in verse 14. It's also how some 3,000 individuals come to faith in Christ on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit allows them to see and understand. Paul gets at this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Spirit brings light and knowledge so that we can see what we couldn't before. So that we can see who our God is, so that we can see who we are apart from him. So that we can see what the life, death, and resurrection has accomplished. And we can now see who we are in him. The wind and the fire. But there's one last thing that you've been waiting on and I'm going to disappoint you. It's speaking in tongues. I'll say briefly... 
that whatever Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 14, that is not what Luke is talking about here. Tongues in the early church, in Paul's letters, is not how tongues is being used in Acts. It's being used in a different way. Paul told the church in Corinth that if anyone speaks in tongues, an interpreter is needed so that the church would be built up. But here, no interpretation is needed at all. Everyone is hearing in their own native language. These Galileans are given the power to preach in another human language. A language that moments before they had no knowledge of. There's something else here I'd I want to focus on and use the rest of my time on. What we're seeing at Pentecost, what we see at Pentecost is a reversal of Babel. You remember the story of the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11? There's a command that God had given to Adam, and he also gave it to Noah, and that command was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So that the earth would be filled with the glory of God and that the Lord's name would be known. Well, the people in Babel decide they don't want to do that. They want to do the opposite. They want to gather together into one place and they want to work together so that their name, their names might be known. We see this in Genesis 11.4. They said to one another, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They don't want to be scattered. They don't want to fill the earth with the glory of God. They want to stay together and make their own name great. What does God do? He came down to the city And the tower. And he confused their language. At this point in redemptive history, there was only one language. But no more. God comes down and he confused their language so that they would not be able to understand one another. And this tower project would be left unfinished. We read... We read in Genesis eleven nine. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. That's the story of Babel. But here at Pentecost, we see the beginnings of its reversal. Like Babel, God comes down. The Holy Spirit comes from heaven, but this time he does not bring confusion, he brings understanding. Ever since Babel, there's all of these different languages and people can't come together and they can't understand one another. And then when you think of the period of history between Babel and Pentecost, we remember that God has singled out one people. He starts with Abraham and he picks one people, the children of Israel, And one language, Hebrew. He speaks to them in that language. He makes covenant with them in that language. He tells them of himself in that one language. 
But now he comes down. And Babel is reversed. The gospel is available in all languages. And when I say that gospel, that, that, that Babel is reversed, I'm not saying that, all right, we had one language, and now we have a multitude of languages, and then we're back to just one language. That's not what happens. What happens is not that there's one language, but there's one message. If you had one language, it might point to the fact that God is only the God of the Galileans, or he's only the God of the Greeks, or he's only the God of the Hebrews. He is not limited to one tongue or nation. This is one message, though. One message. The Holy Spirit comes down and forms a new people. Babel separates everyone into different nations and languages, but the Holy Spirit forms the church. And it isn't divided among ethnic, national, or language divides. There's one message that is transcendent. There's one message that has taken root on every continent among almost every ethnic group. I know that there are still some unreached people groups. We pray that the gospel would take root with them quickly. But this is a global, universal message. Babel. In Babel, humans used language to make a name for themselves. But in Pentecost, God uses languages to make himself known. In Babel, humans were scattered and divided as a punishment. But at Pentecost, Christians are scattered to take the good news to every tribe, tongue, and nation. But it is not punishment. They are still united as the body of Christ. And then when we think of the great hope that we have in the Lord, it is that one day we will stand before the throne, we will behold our King, and we will offer praises to Him. And we will echo the saints in Revelation 5 and sing, Worthy are you, Jesus, for you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed people of God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It's a reversal of Babel. Here's your closing charge. It's four sentences. I'm going to make it very clear and simple. Tell others about the mighty works of God. That's what it means to be spirit-filled. If you study your Bible, whenever someone is spirit-filled, what do they start doing? They start talking about the mighty deeds of God. Tell people who he is. Tell people what he has done. Step out in faith and trust that the Spirit will give you the words needed. Let's pray. Father, because of the wondrous deed you have done in our hearts, giving us new life, taking our sin from us, hiding us in Christ, adopting us into your household, 
We want to join together with our brothers and sisters in this great work of spreading the gospel and telling all your wondrous deeds. Father, would we be ever focused on the glory of Jesus and the advancement of his gospel. This is not about ourselves. It is about you. Would you send your spirit to give us that power, to give us those words, to give us that courage that is needed. We ask all this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.